0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for
1: details.
3: Hey guys, it's Candace. And Kayla, and we are directionally
2: challenged. So directionally challenged, we thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s. (laughs) But surprise, we don't. Nope, we don't. But that's (laughs) fine, right? You know what we did figure out? What? We figured out one thing. What did we figure out? Did Um, I forget already? No, no, you didn't forget. Well, maybe because we're old. But speaking of us feeling really old, we did a bunch of research to see how the youth pose and how they look cool in photographs, because, guys, we have
3: merch. Woohoo! Woo. We love it. We love it. We think it's so cute, and we hope you do, too. I mean, we've got a lot of good feedback from people that are slightly younger than us, you know. Yeah. Um, and they, they approve. So that's good. We're
2: just a couple of women in our 30s trying to fit in with the ladies in their 20s. You know, just <laughs> holding on to whatever shred of youth we have left as our children and lives and husbands just suck it out of us. We're just I was dying. Grasping.
3: I was cracking up when we were shooting the photos because all we did basically is go on Instagram and look at like what cool kids, how cool kids pose. And we were trying to like, Candace, how does this look? How does this look? And she's like, wait, move your foot, do this, do that. And then we finally figured it out. So that's yeah, good. we it was- figured out it's a lot of squatting. Yes, a lot of squatting and like putting your like your legs wider than you think. One leg out, one leg um- out. Yeah. And as someone who's very close to giving birth, I
2: realized like what felt cool in the moment just looks very desperate on film. But (laughs) I wouldn't use the word desperate. I wouldn't use that. I mean, a lot of the squatting youthful positions are also ones I'll be using when my child is crowning. So I don't know how that plays out. But, you know, it's all it's good.
3: All in a day's work over here. (laughs) So, guys,
2: please check out our merch. You can go to our instagram at candace kayla we'll have all the links there all the swipe ups we're going to be posting about it all week there's only two weeks you only have two weeks to buy it this is a pop-up merch blast sale i don't know whatever you cool young kids the lingo that you use when it comes to this but you I got think two it's pop-up weeks shop Maybe. love it there we go
3: <laughs> that works <laughs> that works you're so youthful kayla oh yeah right okay (laughs) um no but you guys so please check it out we it's like kind of our love letter to you and to um aka also trying to be cool i don't know whatever we were really inspired by it but speaking of inspiring we have a truly incredible author on today christina hammond's reed Yes, Christina Hammond's Reed is the author of The Black Kids,
2: uh, an unforgettable coming of age, her debut novel. It explores the issues of race, class and violence through the eyes of a wealthy Black teenager whose family gets caught in the vortex of the 1992
3: Rodney King riots. It's truly fascinating. I was able to read the book beforehand and um, it's a wonderful way to spend your quarantine. So take it from me, pick up the book. Um, She's truly fascinating. So without further ado, Here's our lovely interview with Christina Hammons-Reed. And you go by Christina Hammons-Reed, right? Three yeah. all three syllables perfect three. okay.
1: <laughs> I,
3: love I love it. I love three it. name.
1: We can to thank my parents for that, right?
2: <laughs> That's oh, I love, great. It. I love um, it. Well, that was the good old days when everyone just went by like three names back in the day, you know. Well, wasn't that, like, that the 90s? Jennifer Love Hewitt, yes, I know. It's
1: yeah, it's just
3: so perfect for your book. I love it so it's much. It's true. It's true. <laughs>
1: you
3: are the 90s. I <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess we've just already started. You guys, we are here with Christina Hammonds reed We are so excited that you joined us with the absolute best background. We can't get over how colorful and lively you are. You really are the 90s. You embody it. I mean, it is for those that are listening and can't see her. I mean, there are just like rows of books behind her, all bright colors. I know. I thought you were in a library
2: or a bookstore. (laughs) And a question Have you read all those books? And I will not judge the answer because I'm hoping that you're going to say no to make me feel better because I have so many books in my house. (laughs)
1: I've read read like 70% of them and the other percent, I'm just like, okay, I need to get to eventually when like life calms down. But then that never actually happens, right? You're like, oh, when I have some time. Right. Right. The cool thing is reading is like technically my job. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) So True.
3: I I feel like you can get through that 30%, especially during quarantine right now, for sure. It's true. (laughs) Um, Well, clearly you have such a love for writing and reading and all of that. Um, What made you want to become a writer in the first place?
1: Oh, so that's like a multifold question, right? (laughs) Um, I was this really awkward nerdy kid who took solace in stories and storytelling and i was lucky to have parents who like super encouraged me to read and to express myself in that way and so writing felt like just a natural extension of of Mm. reading and just sort of world building and taking comfort and excitement and all of that um and then the process of becoming a writer was a little more complicated. <laughs> um, I was one of those kids where, like, I went to a school that was pretty competitive, and it was like, oh, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or whatever. It was like all the acceptable professions in this school. Um, so I initially entered college thinking, okay, I'll be a doctor. And I took an honors chem class. I don't know why I did this. I'm not good at honors chem. I just, like, <laughs> bombed it, completely bombed it. Um But it was good because it meant that I was like, I don't actually like doing any of this stuff. Like, I love literature. I love um, political science. Like, these are the things I actually want to invest in. So I took creative writing and political science for undergrad. And then for grad school, I went to film school, which was just sort of a natural extension of uh, another kind of storytelling. So. And then here I am, I took a break from film for a little bit to go back to writing short stories. And one of the short stories ended up becoming the book, The Black Kids. And it's been a wild ride, but a really fun ride. Like how often do you get to do what you dream about as a little kid? So...
3: Not often. Not often. I mean, (laughs) so many of us like dream of being something really awesome in our lives and like living every day and having our jobs not feel like jobs. And you have mastered that. Yes. It took a while,
1: but I'm so happy.
3: (laughs) And the
2: short story that you're talking about, which the black kids were based is based on, um, Mm -hmm. you wrote that years ago, correct? And you actually didn't anticipate that to become a novel. You were encouraged to turn it into a novel.
1: Yeah, so I wrote it back in 2016, 2017, and originally I have to say I was thinking of it as a graduate thesis film when I was at USC for film school, um, but at the time I was like, oh, maybe not, I'll just put that idea to the side for now, and then in 2016 when I went back to like, okay, I want to write short stories and sort of dive into that again, Um I was like, okay, I'll just write and I'll push it out into the world, and like maybe it'll get published, maybe it won't. And so when it did, that's when my agent actually reached out to me and was like, "So, have you thought about writing this as a novel?" Mm-hmm. And at first, I was like, oh, no, "I don't know." I kind of did it; it's done. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, it feels so much more imperative in 2016, 2017 than it did even in twenty ten because the world just changed so much by then in terms of we had smartphones documenting instances of unequal policing, and police brutality in ways that we hadn't really seen before in, in such a capacity, right? And Rodney King and what happens in 1992, technically his beating happens in 1991. But what happens then is like really the first instance of a civilian capturing an instance of police brutality. So it felt like with the rise of Black Lives Matter and sort of The political climate as it was in 2016, 2017, it it felt kind of more imperative to actually build this world out and use the past to hold a mirror up to the present. And Lord knows I had no idea it was going to be like this in 2020.
3: (laughs) And that's what's so crazy about this whole situation. As I was reading about you, I thought, wow, this is so interesting because you did, you set your novel during the Rodney King riots and now y- the release date was planned. You had no idea that all of this was going to happen. And so now a, another huge movement is happening and the big Black Lives Matter movement. And so, I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. How, how does it feel to have accomplished such a defining moment in your career during such a defining moment in our history
1: oh it's so surreal it's very surreal because it's not just like it's it's everything going on with the protests it's the pandemic it's just this crazy world that we're in right now where we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of people wanting to speak truth to power in multiple places across the globe, so it's been very surreal um, and it also feels a little. Weird, because I've had so many good things happen to me this year mm-hmm. when there's so much hurt in the rest of the world, so it, it, it's like a strange thing to be navigating, I think where I'm like super happy and i've um really like actually had my dreams come true in a world where so many people are frustrated and hurting and um, just navigating these really unprecedented as i like to say um times but i hope that the book provides some degree of comfort and some degree of uh almost like i hope that it tries it helps people navigate our current moment like it's mm-hmm. this. i think that in reflecting on 1992 there is so much there that actually the main character is um feeling and and exploring that is super relevant to where we are right now. So hopefully (laughs) that's what I hope readers take away from it in 2020 with everything going on.
2: I feel like sometimes uh, writers can be, you know, in, in the mode of writing it's almost, I've heard a lot of writers say that they're like, they're not even thinking it's just kind of like happening. Like the words Mm -hmm. are coming out, the stories are coming out. Is there anything particular within your story in the black kids that you wrote a few years back and that now almost like you're seeing in a different light or that resonates differently with you um given yeah. t- that it's <laughs>
1: 2020 so much of it because i was not i mean i was young during the riots i was still like a little kid and So as much as like I was alive, then I didn't really have any sort of firsthand experience of what it was like to be um, in the middle of everything, and especially in in March, April, May, as like the protests were really um, underway in Los Angeles, living in it and living in oh, the police said there's a curfew and seeing places that you go to up in flames or with like this massive police presence um it it, it hit differently where i'm like oh so i actually did like a kind of decent job (laughs) in in reflecting on what that feels like because it felt very surreal like i was actually even um there's a moment in the book where she's trying to get back home uh because of the curfew and i had gone to my sister's place who lives halfway across the city from where I live but it was her birthday so I'm like I'm not gonna like miss out on my baby sister's birthday and then I was trying to rush back across the 110 to get to where I live which is closer to the water um and I was just like hopefully I don't get pulled over because this is not the time to get pulled over as a black person um so it it was very it's very surreal to have written these things and and just kind of initially I was doing it off of my imagination and YouTube and all the research I've done. Um, but then to go through it as an adult felt super duper surreal. And, and um, yeah, I, 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 I don't even know if I can use any other word for it, but just very, very surreal to then be living that exact
3: thing. Right. I mean, it's, you talk about all the research you did and it's just so interesting to think that, the 90s are considered historical fiction. I take it as a personal
1: offense. (laughs) It's
3: possible we're dating ourselves to some of our listeners who are a bit younger, but we were all alive during that time. And um, the 90s are
2: yesterday.
3: I'm like, wait, like that. (laughs) <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, I mean, what was it like to write about the 90s with that perspective in mind? And did you have to do research? I mean, obviously, you just said you did. Um, but what did that entail?
1: So writing about the 90s was really fun in a lot of ways because it was getting to revisit the, the fashion and the music and the pop cultural references. And so even though I was young, like I remember a lot of it. And I was eight at the time. So you're like a sponge at the age where you're just like absorbing yeah. all the music and everything going on um but I did have to remind myself of a lot of it too so it was just scouring youtube to be like did this come out then let me watch that music video let me watch that music video which is very fun you're just like I'm researching and watching like pearl jam videos from 1992 <laughs> um but uh so I did that and then there were there's an LA times um it's a a compendium of articles about the riots called understanding the Riots," And it really has all the newspaper articles leading up to and after uh, the riots. So it was really informative to see how they were being covered and also to give a lot of context to, um, what was going on in LA and that helped build towards this moment because they don't happen in a vacuum. There's like so much going on Mm -hmm. in the city at that time. And, um, even something as like silly as looking at the fashion and just being like, let me look through like sassy or 17 and see what people were wearing in high school back then. So it it was a lot of fun to do the research and just kind of delve into specifically 1991, 1992 to see what all was happening. Because I feel like when you're young, it kind of all blurs together a little bit where you're like, was I wearing scrunchies? Was I still wearing <laughs> tie-dye? I don't remember. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was also very enlightening because like the media coverage leading up to uh, the riots, uh, uh, the playbook for it was very similar to how they were covering the George Floyd protests in 2020. So there was this whole stereotyping of protesters as, thugs or as lawless or as as, as just opportunists. Um, And and so we really see that repeated uh, initially in 2020 until I think people realized that that narrative wasn't serving our present moment. Um, But it was, it's very interesting to see all the different parallels between how media covers these things uh, then and now and how at some point those diverged as people realized, hey, wait, that's not that's not going to fly
2: anymore. It was so interesting watching the news this past year while also watching, you know, people that I follow on social media and seeing such different accounts of mm-hmm. events that were happening at the exact same place. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, it's for you having researched everything going on where, I, you know, seeing the narrative play out, you know, had there been social media coverage of people being able to show what was on their cell phones and take videos and Mm -hmm. photos back in 1992. It's wild to think how much is parallel this many years apart. And it's terrifying and scary and frustrating and I'm sure emotionally exhausting. Um, (laughs) When you were researching for your novel initially um, a few years back did you also sit down with other people who were older during the Rodney King riots and who um, were adults at the time and and kind of getting their perspective as well and is is there anything that you took away from that or were you mo- mostly focused on um, you know what Ashley Bennett would have saw as a 17 year old
1: girl a little bit of both because I, I think I was really um one of the books that I utilize in doing the research is this, it's actually a one woman play by Anna Devier Smith called Twilight Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And in it, she, uh, she interviewed a whole bunch of different people at the time to get their perspective on the riots and in the play, which is really great. She embodies each of these different characters. Um, and so I, I use that a lot um, just because I think it's, it's such a cool resource and it was of the moment people remembering back then, as opposed to now. And I think whenever we look back on things, obviously it's not going to be 100% crystal clear with memory. Um, and then also to a certain extent, whenever I told people I was writing the book, um, even just in passing, people will be like, I remember what I was up to, or I remember having to drive from Westwood to blah, 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 blah. So um, it, just everybody who was in LA at the time had these really vivid memories that they like felt like they had to share even without, without prompting. And I think it's because it was such a – it was one of those events that really defined us as a city. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody who was here then and who remembered it then um, – really wanted to to have that community in terms of sharing it um, but I did really want to focus on Ashley because Ashley is removed from a lot of it and she's not as politically um, involved as her sister is in the book and she's not as she's kind of got her head in the sand and she's just trying to like plod through as a teenager and just deal with her teenagery things. <laughs> and, and and she's not as 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 aware of everything going on around her as she really should be, and probably not as aware as I think a lot of young people are now because of social media. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted that removed for her until things get underway to the point where she no longer can ignore them. Um, and that's when I think more of the research and more of what I'd heard from other people started factoring into the story.
3: I mean, I'm from Los Angeles as well. And so reading your book, I felt really moved by the way you wrote about our city. And it truly is almost a character within itself of your book. And um, you can just tell you really, truly love this city for everything it is. And it was, I mean, I I just felt so moved by it. And um, I just... I, I just hope the reader can embody, like take that away as well and realize how much you can love your city. And you have so many fun facts about the city that I loved, too. I, I watched an interview of you and um, how you, you love how Los Angeles, you say Los Angeles was founded by black people and Pico mm-hmm. Boulevard was named after um, one of the wealthiest men at that time. And mm-hmm. he happened to be an Angelino who was black. And there's so much history to the city. Do you have any more? More tips for us and like <laughs> uh fun facts about the city because I've lived here my whole life and I'm still learning about it.
1: Oh, see, this is terrible because if I had known you were gonna ask that, I would oh, have been like, oh, let <laughs> me oh, I should have right? right? said like, that to like, you. We have all <laughs> kinds of things. Um well, that's the one of the main things. Like the the pobladores who are the founders of the city were all like black, mestizo, and Latinx. And there's a plaque in Olvera Street, um, that actually outlines that I don't I think they may have put it up in the nineties, I wanna say. I'm not one hundred percent positive. But there's a plaque in the, that actually like gives credit to them for being um, the founders of the city. And so many people who live here don't learn that, right? Like I mm-hmm. feel like when we're in school, we learn about the missions and, and the Spanish coming over and blah, 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 blah. But I never once learned that in school. And it really took just exploring as an adult and friends who happen to know the history even better than I did. Is
2: this stuff that you had known previously to writing the book or knowing that it was going to be historical fiction? Did you start to research more? um also, because you're right. A lot of people don't know this history. And I think and it's specific to the black community and the Latinx community. And that is a history that is, you know, that is so often shoved under the rug or mysteriously missing from the classroom and from Mm -hmm. school books um and it's not so mysterious obviously um it's frustrating but uh is that something that you knew that you wanted to write into this book when you were initially conceptualizing it
1: yes and no so I I a lot of the things that I I knew, um, for example, the founding of the city. I knew, but then there were other things I discovered just honestly in reading while actually writing. So the fact that Venice had a whole um, a whole black section. There's a section of Venice Beach or a section of Venice called Oakwood that was a, a city or part of the city that was basically for the people who um, had come to work on the Venice Canal, and black people would settle by the beach. Or, for example, there's Um, I don't know if it made it into the book, but there's uh, a spot in Manhattan Beach that was a traditionally Black spot on the beach, Bruce's Beach, um, and that eventually Black people got pushed out of it. So all along, even our coastline, these areas that we think of very traditionally as like blonde-haired, blue-eyed people playing volleyball, like, these places had uh, Black and Latinx people as part of their beginnings in this city, and nobody knows that, and it's something that's only now, like, starting to come to light, Um, and so, for me, it was just a lot of reading, even over the course of the book, made it so that it found its way into the book. I hadn't, like, intentionally decided to put that in there, but then I'm like, that's an interesting fact. Mm -hmm. I just read that. I'm going to put this in here, Um, and... I'm trying to think of other different things that I, I uncovered. For example, Tulsa, which is a huge part of the book. I didn't discover what was going like. I had not read about Tulsa until I was writing the book. So that just tells you how warped our, our history is taught in schools mm-hmm. and just how much work needs to be done about um, making sure that our history is so much more inclusive.
2: And a lot of people also hadn't learned about uh, the fact that Watchmen incorporated yeah. it into their mm-hmm. series was another moment that even just talking with friends are like, did you know that that was re- yeah. like that happened? <laughs> and it's um, it's wild to be getting really important, significant historical moments of our country shown to us through you know, books and television and being like, wait, that was real. And, um, but it's really important, you know, especially I think for a lot of young readers, and this is how people are, you know, also watching TV and series and the Mm -hmm. fact that it's inspiring them to then research more and, and learn and educate themselves because, um, we're kind of failing at educate, you know, finding that in the classroom.
1: Yeah. It's funny. I had a friend text me where he's like, I didn't realize that was real. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, when he saw Watchmen, he's like, I thought they were exaggerating until like he researched more. <laughs> um, but which is mind boggling, right? right? Like it, it takes, yeah. it takes an HBO show for <laughs> more of our country to understand our history and, uh, and then Lovecraft, they, they covered it as well. So mm-hmm. it's I think it's also the power of storytelling, though, like the ability to subvert what the dominant narrative is to say, hey, wait a minute, if I include this in my book, if I include this in my story, you reach so many more people in that way to a certain extent, too. Like kids who maybe weren't super into their history class are going to be like, I saw that on Watchmen. Let, like, let me read more about it. Or I read that in the Black Kids. Let me read more about that. So I think storytelling can be like a really powerful vehicle for sharing history in that way. And it's one of the things I love about writing what is considered
3: historical <laughs> <laughs> Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute.
0: Hi, this
3: is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco
0: Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
3: They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. We're back, I am w- wondering because as I was reading it, I was wondering how much your lead character Ashley is parallel to your own life story. Because you have said a quote that, uh, like me as a child, Ashley had to find her way into the black community, mm-hmm. which I thought was so fascinating. And was writing her a form of therapy for you as well.
1: That is so good. um Yes and no. So I'm not Ashley at all. This Ashley does some. I was like a super nerdy, very sweet kid. And Ashley does some really messed up things. (laughs) So, uh, although maybe some of her, anyway. (laughs) Yes, but in terms of what she experiences with community, absolutely. Because I grew up in a predominantly non-Black area. And I went to predominantly non-Black schools and private schools and did all kinds of like horseback riding and ice skating. All these things that we think of as cost prohibitive to a lot of people of color. So. For me, it wasn't really until, I mean, I have to say really like college is when I found my way into understanding Blackness as not just through the narrow lens that uh, the media portrayed it as. And I think that there's a lot of Black kids who grew up middle or upper middle class where, especially in the 90s and 2000s, there were very... um, harmful stereotypes of blackness are very restrictive ideas of what blackness look like so if you saw that on the screen you're like well i'm not that person that's not what my family looks like like i don't relate to that in any way um and for me it was just finding that community and discovering like there are so many different ways to be black there are so many different ways um that the black experience in this country has uh manifested and studying history and just reading so much more about our history made it so that I, I uncovered that sense of community. Um, but her feelings were definitely things that I was struggling with at the time, like feeling like, well, I don't know if I fit in with those people, but I've known these people forever. Um, and her journey of starting to view it, uh, starting to view the community as an us rather than a them is something that I really wanted to explore. Cause we don't often see that in fiction. We often see, I think, um black kids as the fish out of water in private schools or the fish out of water in whatever the case may be and you don't really see like black kids as being part of the community um having that wealth or having that sort of um i guess i want to say that alienation within the people that they grew up in so that's something i wanted to explore from a different angle
3: That's what makes the black kids so good is your title character is you you don't see many stories told that way. And I mean, it truly is so good. I'm a I'm a fan for sure.
2: Thank you. (laughs) What kind of messages have you gotten from readers of the book so far? Have are there any that stick out to you that um
1: that really impacted you? So the the message that really Uh, touches my heart the most is when people say that they feel seen because I think for so many of us growing up, we didn't see our stories. We didn't relate to the stories that were, um, on screen or in books. And so when other black kids or other black adults say, this is like one of the first few times that I've felt a a a book, like in my bones, um, that, That like makes me want to cry because I'm like, oh, because I wrote that for like my teenage self or my younger self. And so for other people to say that, hey, this is the book that I needed now, or the book that I needed when I was a teenager, that really just makes me want to start bawling. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because it's so cathartic and therapeutic to like reach out to other people and have like, oh, we both had very similar experiences that don't really get discussed. And I'm glad I made you feel
3: seen and understood and heard. I know your teenage self is very proud of you right now.
1: <laughs>
3: I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, I mean, there's so it's also really exciting because I read that this might be turned into a film. They're working on it. That's so man. exciting. They're working on it. I mean, it, because it is a story that needs to be told that isn't told so, that often. And so yeah. to have it available in book form and then also eventually possibly have it available in film is fantastic. And I just want to congratulate you. We want to congratulate you on just being such a wonderful storyteller. And, um, thank you. you know, I know that there are people listening that are young writers that feel like they um, have a story to tell that possibly isn't out there yet do you have any advice for people who um need it yeah
1: um so i think it can be very hard to see the value sometimes in the stories that you want to tell it to feel like will there be an audience for this yeah. and sometimes you have well-meaning other people in your life who will say, Oh, what are you doing? Like you need to do something practical. Or if you do tell a story, maybe you should do something that's what's selling because then you'll sell your story. Um, so I think it's knowing the value of your own voice and, and, and holding on to that and holding on to the fact that whatever story that it is that you have to tell that only you can tell is important and you need to keep working on that and not feel like you need to bow down to any sort of pressure to, um, either conform your storytelling to other people's or to do something practical. Because if I had listened to all of the very well-intentioned people who had told me to do something practical, I would not be living out my dream now. So uh, <laughs> it takes a little longer sometimes. Like it, yeah. is, it is, it is definitely a slog to do something that is not uh, a conventional path to success, mm-hmm. but you got to hold on to your truth and just your value and and your love of story right like it all stems from just a love of world building and storytelling and and people and empathy so I think that's like the biggest advice I can give to any writers out there um hold on to that part of yourself and don't let other people take that away from you and don't don't let the world take that away from you because I know over the course of, of you guys know as creative people, the world can sometimes feel like, okay, well, why are you still doing that? Why don't you go do something else? And, um, you just got to hold on to what it is that you love and, and, and know that if this is the only thing you want to do, then you have to keep doing it.
2: As a lover of stories and storytelling, who are you reading right now? What are your favorite, who are your favorite storytellers right now?
1: Oh, So that's so hard because I feel like I keep uncovering new ones all the time. Like I, some old favorite favorites. I love Jasmine Ward. Anything she writes, I will read. I think uh, her writing is so beautiful. And Colson Whitehead, anything he writes once again, I will read. Um, In terms of YA, there is such just like a Renaissance happening right now with own voices storytelling. There are so many Beautiful writers working in 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 YA. Jason Reynolds is an incredible writer. Um, Elizabeth Acevedo is a really wonderful writer. Like there's just such poetry to their words. I just finished uh, Tiffany Jackson's "Grown," which does a lot in terms of exploring girlhood and the pressures of um, the pressures that society places on Black women and Black girls before they're women um, in terms of just this idea that you're adultified before you're ready for that. And, and, and it kind of takes like a true crime angle with the R. Kelly, uh, situation case. Um, so that's interesting. I'm currently about to start everybody looking by Candace O'L. I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. Uh, which is a queer coming of age story that I'm super excited for, uh, Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa Gyasi, I'm excited for. And it's also just such a pretty book cover. There are so many pretty (laughs) book covers right now. Okay, (laughs) speaking of book covers,
3: that was going to be my next question. Like, yours is phenomenal. There is, I mean, it's striking when you see it up on the page. It is so, you just want to pick it up and start reading it. What was the inspiration behind it? How did you come up with such a great cover?
1: So I have to, like, say that all the credit belongs to the cover design team and the artist. The artist is Adriana Bollet. And she is actually a Spanish, um, -Spanish, African-Spanish creator. And the cover design uh, person was Lucy Ruth Cummins at Simon & Schuster. And they presented me with different options. And I was just blown away by Adriana's uh, design for this cover. I was just like, oh my goodness. Like she hit it right on the head without mm-hmm. minimum, like with minimal input from me. And I think my input was like, maybe there should be more fire on the trees. Maybe she <laughs> should have hoops or maybe she should have studs or I don't know, maybe we should have like a little more color here, a little less color here. Um, I do remember thinking that the pink was very fun. The way my name is across the
3: yeah. like Ashley's
1: collar and that. So a lot of
3: that is just them and
1: minimal input from me. And I think I'm just lucky that I had a team that super got it and was like, they took it and they ran with
3: it. That's what I was going to say. You say it's minimal input from you, but truly it's based on, it's their their inspiration taken from the story that you wrote. Yeah. So in fact, it is mostly you because they read the book and then they get inspired by it. And it just feels like such a perfect culmination of storytelling. And it was so fun to read. And, you know, during quarantine, we all need, I know everyone's Netflix and chilling right now. We get it, <laughs> but like, it's time to pick up a book and read. And you need to pick up, black kids because it is phenomenal
1: thank you
2: what do you hope that the readers take away from your story if there is something if for our listeners right now um Mm -hmm. if there's one thing that they would take away from reading the black kids what do you hope that that is
1: so i think the one thing is just love like the black kids is really an exploration of love of your city love of your family it's about sisterhood it's about girlhood and like these really intense friendships that you have when you're a teenager and um just what that kind of love looks like it's about love of blackness and the beauty of being a black person even in the face of intergenerational trauma and just sort of coming into a love of community so the one thing that i would want readers to take away from it is love um and I hope it also makes them laugh. It's like, it's about all these serious things. But I, I also think it's kind of funny. That um, may just be my personal bias. Uh, but I, I think that life is dark and light at the same time, right? Like there's humor and, and, and ethos all at once. And I think that there's a way to tell that story that also makes you giggle in the middle of what is like sort of just a dark moment in our local history.
2: Hmm. Is there something you'd want to say to your teenage self? Is there something that you realized through writing this novel that you, um, like an element of grace or understanding that you had for your teenage self that you didn't have before? Hmm.
1: That is such a good question. That is like a really good question.
2: I I find I have two teenage stepdaughters and, um, if they're listening, they'd probably be like, really? Um, <laughs> that I'm saying this, but a lot of the times watching them grow up, um, in these really formative years as young women, it really challenges me to revisit my experience as a teenager and giving myself a whole new like perspective of grace on, on yeah. things that I thought and choices that I made. Mm-hmm. And, um, when you, cause it's such a reflection of yourself it's impossible for it not to be so I didn't know if writing through the eyes of Ashley Bennett if you started to see your teenage self in a different way
1: a little bit I think I was more forgiving of my teenage self my teenage self like I wasn't Ashley um but like I said I was very alienated from my community and I think I uh, if I if I now were to speak to her I'd be like go talk to those kids. Like you have more in common with them than you think you do. Um, And just this idea that like, oh, I'm not like them. So maybe they won't like me. Like, Mm. don't be stupid, Christina. (laughs) But (laughs) but also just being forgiving of ourselves. I feel like we're so hard on ourselves just as girls and women. And just, it's such a formative time and such a messy time. Um, Right. And, and I think for me, a lot of what Ashley deals with as a teenager was actually stuff that I didn't deal with until I was in my 20s, to mm-hmm. a certain extent, because I was so like laser focused on school and volunteering and doing all the activities. Um, and my 20s were really when I just had all of this stuff going on. So I think I would just be very forgiving of myself uh, in at that age and just sort of you're going to get through it. Right. I was a little bit more of a Joe, like Joe, Joe's more me than Ashley, but I think that would be my advice to 20 to something Christina. Like you're, you're going to be okay at the end of it.
3: Well, it's so funny, too, because you talk about how it's like your book is such a love letter and you want people to take away love for each other, for their community, for the black community, for all of this. But I think it's also about self-love because it's learning to love yourself however you are. And this is it it also brings in Candace's like idea of um, giving yourself as a teenager, uh, you know, kind of the benefit of the doubt and, and knowing that we're all just doing our best in any sort of messy scenario that comes our way and that happens in 1992 that happens in 2020 that happens all throughout life and it doesn't stop when you're a teenager it continues and it will always continue and it's a lesson that we have to keep learning over and over again is giving ourselves grace loving ourselves through all of life's lessons and letting it be okay just letting it be okay and it's funny how you learn it and then you you go through it and you got to learn it again and you have to relearn it again and so It's just a part of life. And um, you just so beautifully wrote about it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: It's like therapy on the page for all of us, right? Totally.
2: (laughs) Of course (laughs) it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christina, as someone who's grown up in Los Angeles, um, especially in a year like this past year, what Mm -hmm. does LA mean to you?
1: LA for me is it's such a beautiful place because I think it's one of these places where people come to dream, right? People come with these huge dreams. And I think sometimes, um, natives can be like, Oh, transplants, blah, 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 blah. Um, but I think that that's, if we go back even historically, it's always been somewhere that people have come to dream, right? Like the fact that we have these founders of our city who were black and Latinx, so. and the fact that people come for Hollywood and the fact that people come uh, from their small towns to sort of find comfort in a bigger community. Sometimes when it's either the queer community or a more diverse community, there are like so many different people who, who come here and find home. And more often than not, when you talk to people in LA, most of the time you're not talking to people who are from here. And, and that's, I think one of the things that makes it such a beautiful place too, like people come from all over. If you are doing LA, right, you can meet people from all over the globe and, and find like your home in those people in this place. So for me, that is really the thing that I I celebrate about this place. And I love about this place. Like it is a diversity of experience. There are so many, uh, different kinds of people and there's so many ways to participate in other people's cultures when you're here. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that that's such a wonderful thing and it's something that is, um, it, it, it's common to a lot of big cities, but there's just a particular LA flavor to it. And the Mm -hmm. fact that there's just like something really magical about the fact that everybody comes here to fulfill those dreams, whether it was five years ago or 30 years ago or a hundred years ago, I think that that's, um, it's one of the beautiful things about it and it's one of the things I want to preserve about it because I think the fact that our city is getting so much more expensive is is troubling because it's pushing out some of those people who have historically made it what it is, right? Like the fact that people are no longer to, able to afford it um, is, is heartbreaking when you think about just how complex and interesting this place is because of those people, so... Mm. That's what I think LA means to me. And I, that's what I want to preserve about the city. I want to preserve its diversity of people and experience. And, and even geographically, it's so diverse the fact that you can be in the hills and at the beach and in the desert. And um, I just really love the city. And it took a while for me to get there because when I was younger, it's like, LA is so lame. I want to move to New York, blah, 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 blah. Um, But as I get older, I just really, truly love so much about this place. And I hope the Black Kids shares that love with other people. And be like, wait, this place is actually really cool.
3: Well, it definitely does. And um, (laughs) I know so many of our uh, listeners will want to go get the book. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, And where can they find you? Do you have social media and they can follow you?
1: I do. I'm on Instagram at at Christina Hammond's read. So my full name on Instagram. Um, And there are signed copies of the book at Romans. And there may be a few still left at Skylight, I want to say. Um, I don't know if they sold them because I signed them a while ago, but they're all over. But those places in particular have signed copies if you're interested.
3: So fun. fun. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We thoroughly enjoyed reading your book and then just falling in love with you all over again during thank this discussion. So
1: <laughs> such a wonderful discussion, so thoughtful. I love it.
2: Yay. Oh, Christina Hammond's read. I'm so glad that we were able to sit down with you today. I also I I love um Anyone who's just grown up in Los Angeles, I think is a really incredible thing. I mean, I know you didn't grow up
3: specifically like in L.A. County, Kayla, but you're a California girl. Right. So I grew up in Long Beach, which is technically L.A. County, but it's not the city oh. of Los Angeles. No, it's fine. Uh, I thought you were my friend. Don't you know where I, I know. grew up? No, but it's L.A. County. But um, yeah, I, I truly loved reading it because I felt like I identified with so much Um that she, the way she loved the city so much, I really related to that. And um, she truly is such a storyteller. And I loved uh, having this conversation with her today too. She's so much light and love to share. And I can see how readers will absolutely take away love from her book. And let's be honest, we can all use a little more love right now, right?
2: Yeah, and it was really important. And I think I want to just re-highlight what she was talking about when it comes to, if you're not going to follow the conventional path as a career that sometimes it does take longer and there are twists and turns to that journey of kind of realizing your, your dreams and also realizing those accomplishments. And um, I I think that it's really important for any beyond just any young listeners, any listeners right now, um, because this can also, there's a lot of time uh, in quarantine to sit with your thoughts. And um, I think that it's easy to, have days that are really tough and to feel like especially if you're in a creative industry like finding that creativity and remembering to trust your voice and believe in yourself and apply yourself to your dream essentially and I think she just so wonderfully um reminded us all that we need to continue that you know as, as, as you know Kayla it was people in the creative industry it's important to remember that and anyone who's not to still be able to apply that to what you might be experiencing this year.
3: It's so true. And not just this year, but always, even as artists, I feel like we're constantly changing. And that's why we started this podcast too, because we thought we'd have everything figured out. And guess what? You just kind of never do. And that's okay. And we're okay with that. And it's accepting yourself through all of that. We hope you guys enjoyed our interview with Christina Hammonds-Reed. Go out and get The Black Kids. It's available wherever books are sold. It's also available on audio. And we will have another great episode of Directionally Challenge for you next week.